got a statement I want to put on the uh, screen, and I want you to tell me true or false. We live in uncertain times. Anybody disagree with that statement? Tell me some things that, that happened in um, 2000, April 28, 2013, that make this time a little bit uncertain. Give me some ideas. Bombings. Boston bombing. Other bombings, right? Weather. Explosion in West. I mean, who knew that was going to happen? Um, there's all kinds of things. Wow. Traffic accidents. That's right. Life is just uncertain. Um, let me put some things that tell you some things that I wrote down here. Um, finances, taxes, divorce rate, depression, relationships, government, terrorism, savings account balance. What's a savings account? Um, Mother's Day presents. And then, you know, has anybody else, anybody else in here, you got a daughter turning 16 this next Friday? Yeah, that's me. There's, there's a little heartburn going on in the uh, Washburn household because if that's not uncertain, I don't know what is. The Bible was written by more than 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. And um, those years were anything but stable. And, and sometimes we think that our time frame is more uncertain than their time frame, but that's not the case. If you study, you'll see that the Bible was written back then, and the people who lived back then lived in some very uncertain times. Take, for example, our text for today. How many of you have heard the uh, term upper room? I've heard of upper room bookstores, I've heard of upper room churches and coffee houses and ministries and all these things. But what are Christians talking about when they mention the upper room? Specifically, Christians are talking about the Thursday night, the last night before Jesus was crucified. And when we mention the upper room, we talk about what happened in the upper room, we talk about the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Now, what was going on is Jesus and his disciples were getting together and they were going to celebrate the Passover meal. Every Jew from richest to poorest was supposed to come to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate the Passover. So just imagine thousands and thousands, probably over 100,000 extra people crammed into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. So it was very, very crowded. And the people were to get together and they were to remember all the way back when the, uh, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And it was the night before they were going to leave, and um, all they had known for over 400 years was slavery. They had prayed to God for 400 years. For 400 years, God had not answered, so they thought. And then one day, God sends them a deliverer. What was his name? Moses. One person knew that. What was his name? Thank you. Moses comes, and Moses says, um, tomorrow we're leaving. He said, there is an angel of death that is going to pass over the land of Egypt. And he's going to kill the firstborn child of everyone who does not have the blood of a lamb on the two side posts and the covering post of a door. If he sees that, then the blood will cover the sins of that family, of that child, and he will not be killed. But if he does not see the blood of the lamb, then he will kill the child. And so the death angel comes that night. He does his thing. And the next morning, Pharaoh says, you may leave now. And so the Passover meal was the last supper in Egypt. And the next morning, they loaded up all of their belongings, all of the wealth that the um, Egyptians had given them, and they headed for the promised land. And we know it took them a while to get there, but they eventually got to the promised land. Now, 1,400 years later, Jesus and his followers are going to celebrate the Passover. 
And they'd done this many times before. But before, every time before, Jesus had been very popular. But the circumstances that were surrounding this night were radically different than any they had experienced before. Because rumors had, rumor had it that there were some people who really did not like Jesus and they were going to take him out. And on top of the rumors, Jesus starts talking about his own death and his followers kind of tuned out the death part of his teaching. And it's real important to understand their mindset was very similar to ours. Their mindset was, if God is with you, things get better and better and better. If God is on your side, you get healed. You get wealthier. Everything gets better if God is on your side. So they thought, and you and I tend to think the same thing. And that's why this Thursday night got very, very confusing for the disciples. Because everyone knew they were going to go to Jerusalem and they were going to have trouble in Jerusalem. They'd been there before. They had trouble. There was no reason to think they weren't going to have trouble because the authorities wanted to kill Jesus. And so when Jesus announces, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem, Thomas, the great doubting Thomas, he says, we might as well go die with him, guys. And it was as if Jesus had this death wish. And so they go to Jerusalem and Jesus says, we're going to have trouble, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. Who's coming with me? They're like, might as well, don't know what else we're going to do. And every other time they had celebrated the Passover, Jesus had given them specific instructions about where they were going to go, but not this time. Jesus pulls a couple of his followers aside, and he sends them into the town to find a mysterious man, and they were supposed to follow this man. This man would show them where they were going to have the uh, Passover meal. He never told the disciples where they were going this time because the circumstances were so different. And so they, they wait until the cover of darkness. They sneak into the city to this particular upper room, and they begin having the Passover And this is kind of crazy to me because you remember five days earlier on Sunday, Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is sitting on a donkey. People are waving palm branches. They're putting their cloaks in the road. And everybody's celebrating the King of Kings has come to restore Israel. And they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, Thursday night, they sneak into this upper room. And things are really, really strange. That's where we pick up our passage in Mark chapter 14, verse 17. If you have a, a smartphone, you have version. you can look it up there. Every, all the verses are there as well. If not, you can watch on the screen. In the evening, Jesus went to that house. So they were sneaking in at night with the twelve. While they were all eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will turn against me. One of you eating with me now. Jesus says, I have, I have an announcement to make. One of you guys is going to hand me over. And nobody raised their hands and said, hand you over to who? Because everybody knew. Jesus had made some enemies. To say he was unpopular, that's an understatement. And the circumstances had changed so much in five days that to be seen with Jesus was to put your own life in danger. And then to make matters worse, Jesus says, one of you dudes is going to stab me in the back. Now see, in that culture, if you sat down and ate with them, it was considered friendship. It was considered a bond between the two of you. And it would be kind of like you have a birthday party at your house and you, you fix this big meal and you invite people over. Let's say Thanksgiving, you have a big meal, you invite people over. Christmas, you're having a big Christmas meal and you invite people over and they come and you have a great time. You pray together. Oh God, thank you for this bountiful food that we're going to eat. And you, they give you presents. And then at the end of the meal, they hand you a subpoena and say, uh, by the way, I'm suing you for everything you've got. See you in court. Would that be kind of tacky? It was even more so in that culture to have a meal with someone and then to betray him. Jesus said, not only are you, is one of you going to betray me, but it's one of you sitting here at the most sacred meal on the Jewish religious calendar. We're celebrating what God did for our nation 1,400 years ago when he showed up in a remarkable way and delivered all the Israelites from Egypt. 
We're celebrating this national coming out of Egypt party and one of you is pretending to be my friend and in just a little while you're going to stab me in the back. Verse 19. The followers were very sad to hear this. They were sad to hear that too. Each one of them began to say to Jesus, I'm not the one, am I? Jesus answered, It's one of the twelve, the one who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will die, just as the Scriptures say, but how terrible it will be for that person who hands the Son of Man over to be killed. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. The followers of Jesus had argued before about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now they're arguing about who's the worst. And see, the Bible talks about um, being um, adopted into God's family. It calls it being born again. It's a spiritual birth. I tell kids all the time, you have a physical birth. In order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you must have a spiritual birth as well. And this last sentence of this, this uh, passage we just read indicates that if you are not born again, if you don't have a spiritual birth, there will, there will be a day when you wish you'd never been born at all because you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. Would you agree that um, things were just a little bit uncertain during this time? Just a bit. The Bible was written during a time of crazy uncertainty. And, and all of you agreed just a few minutes ago that our nation is facing a similar time of uncertainty. And, and the Bible, I want you to understand, is the perfect place to run when life gets crazy. You pick out any story, you study the background, you'll discover that the Bible was written during uncertain times. That's what I want you to understand. It w- it's always going to be uncertain. The Bible's not a book about rich people having fun. There's no happily ever after in here until Jesus comes back on the clouds and he takes us to be with him into heaven. That's when it's going to be happily ever after. But in this lifetime, there will, not, there will be no such thing. The Bible stories remind us that every time God's people went through uncertain times, every time they cried out to God, every time they waited on God, they discovered God is faithful. And don't you think now, at this, at this point in our nation's history, don't you think this is kind of the perfect time to run to the Bible? Because it has so much to say to us. Let me give you some quick uncertainty examples, just in case you're not sure about this. First one is Joseph. Back in Genesis chapter 30, we meet a boy named Joseph. He's a dreamer, and when he becomes a young man, his brothers throw him into a pit. Now, you've had sibling rivalries, right? You ever been in a pit and heard your siblings debating, do we kill him or do we sell him? Anybody got that one? I don't think so. It's bad, but it hadn't been that bad. Very few of us have heard that. But over the next 20 chapters in Genesis, we find that Joseph is sold into slavery, and then he is thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. And we discover, though, that everywhere he went, God was with him during uncertain times. Or how about King David? We know a lot about King David, but did you know that he kind of had some trouble with his kids? Now, let me just give you one example. And I don't know if you've had trouble with your kids, but, but just compare yourself to David. David had a son who raped one of David's daughters. It was his half-sister, but he raped her. And then he shamed her. He throws her out in the street. He totally rejects her. And so David has another son named Absalom. Absalom takes her into his house. He says, don't say anything. We'll take care of this. David never did anything. Two years later, Absalom throws this big dinner. He invites Amnon, who, who had raped his sister Tamar, invites him to the meal and murders him there. And everybody scatters. Absalom's gone crazy. He's going to kill us all. No, just going to kill that one. He had plotted this. And then to make matters worse, Absalom gathers an army to dethrone his father, King David. 
Now, how many of you saw that we had five living presidents in Dallas just a couple of days ago? Did y'all see that on the news? Is everywhere on the news? It's kind of a big deal to have five living presidents from the United States all gathered in one place, and they're celebrating, woo-hoo, George Bush has a library, wah, you know, and they're acting all nice and stuff. In those days, there was no such thing as five living kings of the same country, because you know how you dethrone someone? You kill him. So David is running for his life from his own son. But when you read the whole story, you discover that God was with him and eventually restored the throne to him, even though it was uncertain. There's another one named Moses. We talk about Big Mo all the time. A Hebrew mother has a son during a time when Pharaoh says, there's too many Hebrews in the land. I'm kind of worried that if someone comes up against us, they're going to join them and they'll overthrow us. So he made a law, kill every Hebrew boy. Girls could live because the the Egyptian men could marry them and integrate them into society. Not a big deal. Women didn't have any, any rights back then. All the Hebrew boys were to be killed. Moses' mom can't stand the thought of that. So if she has to decide between the crocodiles and the death squad, she says, I'll take the crocodiles. She wraps him, in this, wraps him up, puts him in a little boat, sends him out in the Nile River, and through the most amazing, crazy set of circumstances, not only does God deliver Moses, God later uses Moses to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. And you discover that in uncertain times, God is always faithful. And Moses' deliverance from the death squad foreshadows another baby needing to be delivered from a similar death squad in Bethlehem. Who was that? Jesus. Because Herod hears that some little baby is being called king of the Jews. And Herod's like, that's my job. And, and if you've ever studied Herod's life, you see that this guy's ego was bigger than the planet. And he was so insecure that he decided, I cannot even let a baby live who someone's calling the king of the Jews. So he makes a law and he goes out and he sends a death squad to slaughter all the baby boys, two years of age and under, because he wasn't sure when Jesus was born. And so while the death Squad is carrying out the slaughter of the babies. Mary and Joseph escape to, of all places, back to Egypt. And you discover throughout Jesus' life that God was with him during uncertain times. You read the Bible. Cover to cover, you'll discover that no matter what the circumstances look like, God is always with his people. And every time you'll discover that God has the whole world in his hands, he's still got your world in his hands. Men like Herod and Pharaoh, they thought they were in control. Satan, the enemy of God, thought he had defeated the people of God. But when you look back through the rubble of history, you'll you'll figure out that God was in control the whole time. The message of the Bible and of this church is that God, he's got the whole world in his hands and he always has. Verse 22 While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and thanked God for it and broke it. Then he gave to his followers and he said, take it, this is my body. Jesus stops in the middle of this celebration. He goes, guys, I know you've done the Passover thing your whole life, but from now on, from this moment on, it's going to have a totally different meaning. And and Jesus says, this bread is my body. Now, when he says is, he means it represents my body. He was still standing there. He'd not been broken for them. His body had not been broken. He'd not been beaten for them. Yet he's standing there taking the bread saying, this bread represents my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. Verse 23, then Jesus took a cup and thanked God for it and gave it to the followers and they all drank from the cup. Then Jesus said, this is my blood, which is the new agreement that God makes with his disciples. This blood is poured out for many. So the cup represents his blood. Jesus is still standing there. He's not been beaten. He's not been tried. He's not been nailed to a cross and he's not bled yet. 
So it could not be his physical blood. And, and if you know anything about the Hebrew culture in the Old Testament, God said, never take the blood because life is in the blood. And so it would have been offensive to the whole uh, nation to think that, that it was really blood in the cup. It represents his blood that's about to be poured out for many. At this point, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says this in verse 27. Then Jesus told his followers, you will all stumble in your faith because it is written in the scriptures, I will kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I rise from the dead, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said, everyone else may stumble in their faith, but I will not. Peter's like, enough with the negativity. This isn't how it works. When God is with you, everything gets better. Jesus, you of all people should know this is not how the story goes. And see, life gets uncertain, you know, around us. And with all the uncertainty surrounding us, we got to ask ourselves this question. This passage brings out this question. Can you trust God when there's absolutely no evidence that he's working in your life? Because the way you answer that question will determine how you face uncertain times. In case you've not figured it out, the only certainty in life is uncertainty. You know, if we could stop the service right now and invite some special guests in and kind of do an Oprah Winfrey type interview, I would ask God, could we bring down your followers, your disciples, and ask them a couple of questions? The first question I'd like to do as we line the guys up here, I would say, I would say, when was your darkest hour? When was it in your lifetime that you thought that God was not there? And I think they would point to this passage of scripture we just read. And I think they'd say, our darkest hour is in the upper room when we clued in that things were not going to get better. When we watch Jesus get arrested, tried, beaten, nailed to a cross, pierced with a spear, and God didn't show up, that was our darkest hour. We decided God's not here. That's the darkest time. And so then question two. Let me follow up with that, guys. Question two. When was God most powerfully active in Jesus' life and by extension in your life? Was it when he healed the blind man? Was it when he made the lame man's legs? You know, he'd never walked on the legs and all of a sudden they grow muscles. I think that's what it sounds like when you grow muscles. And, and they grow muscles, dude stands up and walks. Was that it? Was, was the greatest time when Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb after four stinking days he's been dead? When was God most active in your life? And I think these guys would point back to this same passage and you go, you know, it's the very same night. When we thought God was doing nothing, He was doing the most. We didn't know it at the time, but God was doing an amazing thing. And we believe that thousands of years from now, people are going to look back at what Jesus did to demonstrate his love for us, and they're going to say, that's the best God had to offer. So you ask us the darkest time? The Last Supper and the events that followed it. You ask us the greatest time? It's the Last Supper and the events that followed We just needed some time to see it from a different perspective. See, they thought they'd wasted their lives until God showed up. And if you're a Christ follower, that's your story too. God seems to do his greatest work in a broken and battered life as he picks it up and he puts it back together. God takes messed up situations and he shows up in ways that we would never choose, never dream of. And as you grow in the Christian life, you discover that God's greatest miracles begin in our biggest messes. Now, do not go out and mess up your life intentionally and go, well, the preacher said this is how you experience God. (laughs) Stupid. Okay? Can we say that? Don't do that intentionally, but let me just say, 
that when a person gets broken before God, it very often causes God to move. When a nation is broken and humble before God, it very often causes God to move. Um, And you've got to understand that the message today is that God is in control regardless of what the circumstances say. You know, there's never been a more uncertain time in history than what happened with Jesus on the cross. Judas saw what happened, and Judas went out and killed himself because there was some uncertainty. Peter was just as big a failure as Judas, but he had a different reaction to it. Peter kept plodding along despite the circumstances until Sunday morning when Jesus showed up. One of them we consider a huge failure, Judas, because he took matters into his own hands. One of them we consider a huge success and a hero of the faith because he waited until God showed up. So here's what I want you to remember today. Life is uncertain, God is not. I want you to say that with me. Life is uncertain, God is not. Say it again. Life is uncertain, God is not. This time I want you to emphasize God. Ready? Life is uncertain. God is not. Remember that. He's got your world in his hands. He's got your family in his hands. He's got your children in his hands. He's got your finances in his hands. He's got your whole world in his hands. If you've ever been burned by a church, this may be really hard for you to believe. But God is always in control. Every page of the Bible, the message is that God's got the whole world in his hands. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this, For we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So it doesn't say that everything that happens, God causes it to happen. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It says God will cause everything in your life, good and bad, for your good. What's the good? It's mentioned in the next verse. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. God wants you to look like Jesus Christ. He wants you to bear the family resemblance. So he'll take the good and the bad in your life. He'll chip off the rough edges and you'll come into his presence someday looking more like his son. And that's the goal all along. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You know, we have an advantage as we look back to those people in the Old Testament. We have an advantage over them because we can look back at the cross and we can say, if God was in control when Jesus hung on the cross... There's no reason to believe he's not in control today. Now, I want you to take your registration cards, and we're going to do something just a little bit different today. On your registration card on the back, I want you to write down what it is that you're facing that is most uncertain right now. What is it that keeps you awake at night, that you're praying about, that you're stressed over? Whatever your number one uncertainty is, I want you to write that on the back of the card. Now, we're not going to put those back there, so we're going to talk about two baskets at the back. We have one basket that's our joy basket, It's how we give our offerings. You can give online or you can give back there, however you want to do that. We have another basket called the bagel basket. That's everything that goes in there is for debt. Now, here's what I want you to do. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and um, the Lord's Supper is for Christ followers. Um, we, We do this occasionally, and we have to explain what it is. The Lord's Supper, we just talked about it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But, but here's what you're supposed to do before you take the Lord's Supper. You're supposed to examine your heart, and if there's any sin in your heart, you're supposed to confess that before you come to the table. And then if there's a relationship issue that you have not made right, you haven't done everything you could to make it right with somebody, then you're not supposed to come to the Lord's table. But as you sit there and as you examine your heart, if you've confessed your sin, you've done everything to make things right with somebody that you can do because you can't control their reaction to it, then you come to the Lord's 
table. We're going to have one at each side. Now, here's what I want you to do with your card. Because the most uncertain thing in history was Jesus dying on the cross. As a symbol that you are trusting God in the midst of your uncertainty. As you come to one of these tables, I want you to put your card here at the altar. God, I know if you were in charge then, if you were in control then, you're in control in my life. And just kind of symbolically, I'm going to put that card down there. If you don't come take the Lord's Supper, that's fine. You can put the card here. You can put the card back there. It doesn't matter. But when you're ready, you come and take the Lord's Supper. And then I'm going to ask you to come back and sit down quietly until we finish this. We'll, we'll dismiss uh, with a word of prayer. So let's just bow our heads. They're going to play some music. And as you feel led, as you feel ready, either come to the altar. You may need to cry out at the altar. If you need to talk to me, you need to talk to James. We're up here at the front. But let's just spend some time before our incredible God who is always in control. Let faith arise. Let faith arise. We're going to continue this. Some of you are still praying, and that's fine. One of my favorite ways to end a worship service is just with a time of prayer. And so I'm going to pray over us, and, and you will be dismissed. You, you are certainly welcome to come. We'll keep these tables here as long as there's folks who are praying and, and want to come. Um, we just pray that, that you would always remember that God is bigger than your circumstances. And it takes faith to believe that. And it, you have to take your eyes off your circumstances, put them on God, and you'll discover after the fact that He was working all along.